welcome to Love Always Self. I'm Shira. Hi, y'all. I'm Karista, and thank you so much for joining us on this special episode of Love Always Self for the limited series, The People's Journey. Today, we have a wonderful guest on. His name is Adam Russell, and he's here to share his life experiences and insights and everything that he's gained as he's worked to creating greater awareness and connecting with himself. So thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. It's so good to be here. Thank you for having me. Adam is an ecologist, an explorer, and an educator. For a decade, he was an educator for Remote Medical International, where he has worked with human and land health in remote locations around the world since 2006. He has worked to regenerate land with the use of the holistic management framework, Regarian's platform, permaculture, earthworks, biodynamics, pyramids, and home of farming practices, which include biofertilizers and Agnihotra. He seeks to build a knowledge base of how we can work to release the potential from underutilized lands. Adam's current projects include broad-scale soil and atmospheric regeneration and the spread of available solutions through his work with symbiosis. Hi, Adam. Hello. That is wild. (laughs) I know. That is a lot of words that we are going to need to spend some time diving into. But today, we just really want to focus on Adam and who you are and how you came to be in the place that you're at today. (laughs) Oh, gosh. What a meandering, wonderful, truthful journey it's been. (laughs) Happy to be here and happy to share. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Adam. So first off, just to tell the audience a little bit more, Adam is a dear friend of my husband's, John, and we are just so blessed to have him and his wonderful family as a part of our life. And can't wait to hear about your journey. Oh my goodness. And Adam, you've always been so fascinating to me, your level of intelligence and yet down-to-earth personality has just always warmed me to the fact that there are so many of us out there that are looking to journey within. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started looking within and did it have anything to do with the work that you're doing? You know, as as I've been thinking about this uh, talk, the thing that keeps coming up like a loudspeaker that I can't move forward until I mention is... Carrie's husband, John, because a long time ago, back in high school, I was throwing discus and short story of kind of quintessential high school moment of the track team needed a couple more points to win the district, you know, as a, as a whole team. And the coach comes in and I'd been choking repeatedly on throwing discus um, just out of nervousness and anxiousness. I was never great at meets, but I was a pretty good discus thrower outside in practice. And coach comes up and he said, I'm not sure what you're doing, but do whatever you do in practice. <laughs> and both John and I look at each other and we're like, well, I mean, during practice, we'll turn on Eye of the Tiger and we'll blast it as loud as we can. And we introduce ourselves as various different mythical characters of like, oh, I'm Magnus von Magnuson, just fresh off the glacier, living in the Arctic Circle. I'm seven feet tall and my arms are 12 feet in diameter. Let's go throw this discus. And we would just be so full of play and silliness that we would be in a completely different place. And so in that moment, the coach just said, do whatever you have to do. I don't even want to know. <laughs> <Walk away. laughs> John and I look at each other and I say, John, 
you're going to have to sing Eye of the Tiger for me. And without a hesitation, John just selflessly said, okay. And he just got right in front of me as I get ready to throw. And he starts the intro, the full blown intro. I give him like the full minute to get through the intro. And finally, when he gets into the chorus, I like wind up and throw. And it was like 20 feet further than I'd ever thrown. And I believe I still hold the record at Lake Travis High School for that throw. But why I mentioned that is not to toot my own horn, but it was this great realization of even in such an individual sport, the belief and vulnerability that someone has in you to do a selfless task can absolutely like it drove me into a place of like deep gratitude that he was doing such a ridiculous thing in front of all these other athletes who were just talking about us like, Oh, this is ridiculous. And it allowed in that moment, it allowed me to reach my fullest potential. I'd never thrown that far in my entire life. I think it was like 170 feet or something. But from that moment, I've always held on to that moment and always been seeking other moments to find this connection with another human being where both people are in a place of vulnerability and gratitude and trust and selflessness and both with a shared goal of moving forward. Like what's the shared goal and how do we do it together and what pieces can you do and what pieces can I do? So that piece of John has really been like a massive foundation for every single thing I've ever done after that, just seeking for those types of connections with people. So yeah, I just felt like I had to mention that because then that took me into this feeling after after college, I was just so drawn to climbing and getting into places where you are inherently trusting your partner. You know, now you have that like relationship and that like, you're not just in your head thinking about problems and solving them, but you're also in your heart feeling the whole wild world of mountain and weather and rain and snow and the wild dynamicness of the wilderness, but sharing in that vulnerability with another human being. And so, you know, that took me up to the North Cascades in Washington state. And I just climbed as much as I could finding other people to connect with for about 10 years while I did other teaching jobs. What was that like? (laughs) You know, as, as I would, it was such a wonderful life because I would be able to teach fifth grade through high school and adults during Monday through Friday. And then on the weekends, I would always have a very, uh, a different climbing partner coming up. You know, it's kind of always this question of like, how far can we go in the time that we have? So many times we would leave Thursday evening or Friday at at noon and get back at Monday morning at 2 a.m. and start all over again. But the whole thing was this, I realized relatively quickly that so many climbers climbed for the route and the technical aspect of it. And so many things that I was just there to connect with another human. Like I just wanted that like heartfelt experience of trust and vulnerability and believing in ourselves and each other to go into the wild beyond and and see what was possible. Because so much of my earlier years, it was this feeling of like, wow, we have so much programming. We have so much fear of others and of our culture uh, that limits us to be what we see on reality TV, these, I don't know, limited versions of ourselves. And so as 
we spent more time in the wilderness in these wild places, I would just come into these experiences. It kind of felt like opening the door on a, on a group of people that was having a very important conversation, but it was invisible, but you felt it in your heart. You'd come into a wild place or you'd wake up after sleeping in a wild place. And I would experience like this, this feel of a place and relatively quickly came to realize that like each place had such a different personality. It was almost like these unseen energetic pieces of the world go to these wild places as like a refuge to get away from humans because we're loud and we're obnoxious and we don't ask for consent before we do anything. <laughs> and so these energetic personalities, entities, energies, whatever you want to call them, kind of move into these wild spaces as a, as just a way to get away from the busyness of, of a city. And I think we all experience that when we go into a wild place, as we feel something wild around us. It's not just beautiful and it's not just scenic, but there's, there's like a wild energy around us. And, and I think it's what draws us to those wild places. So that just really started me asking questions of like, what am I experiencing? Are other people having these experiences? You know, certain parts of the North Cascades, I would just not want to go at all. There would just be like an, a loomingness of like, Ugh, I, I don't want to go in that area. And yet friends would say, oh, we have to go in that area. There's this specific route and it's amazing. And I've always heard about it. And when I, when we finally went down into one valley, there was this experience of this feeling of just like, we are absolutely unwelcome in this place. Wow. We need, this is not a place for like snacking and eating, like just continue moving. We just put your head down, make some miles. Let's just move on. And as we got out, you know, I'm just inherently a curious person. I look at the Statattle Creek and what that word means in the, in the indigenous tongue. And it was the place of the wicked spirits. And like, wow. that was always the place where people kind of like, didn't go. Ooh, I just got chills. I did too. Full <laughs> body chills. I did hear in my head just now, Adam, I, I was hearing that like you were connecting to something that the indigenous connected to as well, right? Like you're picking up on the vibes that they also likely picked up in order to name it like that in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, coming upon that, it was like such a validation of like, that's what we, that's what we felt out there. Like, of course, of course you would name it like that. But it really kind of shifted how we started to experience the, the wild places. My friends and I, before going to someplace, we would kind of have a, a consent-based conversation with wherever we were going. You know, get out of the car and pack up everything and, and just kind of have this little meditative prayer moment of giving gratitude for the people and places and mentors that have given us the skills to come to this place and this vehicle and the wild system that allows it to run and fuel it to get to here. And we're here now and we're not going to stay. Like we're only going to be here for two days or seven days. And then we're gone to only like bring pictures and memories and stories to share the beauty and the wilderness and the wonder of this place. And we would just ask for like safe passage. And if at any point along the way, this is not our place to be, like just give us a hint and we'll turn around, no questions asked. And after we started kind of having that conversation with a place and sensing into ourselves and trusting each other, that if someone felt something or noticed something that 
didn't feel well, it really kind of shifted of like, anytime you would kind of have that little conversation, it felt like, like Dawn soap being dropped in an oily pan. And it was like, you get to this like wilderness trailhead and all this energy is kind of like looking at you from the woods, from the trees, from the soil. And it's like, okay, what are these ones about? You know, are they respectful? Are they going to stay here? Are they going to chop our trees down and build a house and stay forever? Like, what is the intention behind these curious characters? And by just stating that, it kind of like gave us free passage to go have wonderful experiences in the mountains and wild places without this weird, funky stuff of like random things would go missing or a tent pole would break or just strange things would occur whenever we kind of came in with a hubris filled, we're going to go conquer the thing mindset, Mm. all kinds of strangeness would occur around us. And then when we came in with a humble gratitude to the place and what we were potentially about to experience, everything worked better. Wow. So it was during this time frame that you actually started recognizing these different energies, right? You you were climbing and that's when you started connecting with this different feeling and started to evaluate these patterns of connections. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Because along the way, you're I think the Other than the human relationship, the other piece of climbing that's all, especially alpine climbing, because you're just moving for days at a time, is this hyper-awareness. You're just aware of everything for a prolonged amount of time. And the questions that were always rolling around in our head were these like contemplative, open-ended questions of, am I noticing anything? And is anything that I am noticing changing? And that's just like such a wildly open-ended question that we realized that, and now that I understand the science of the brain more, it was a place that would just like shove us into our right brain thinking and kind of our heartfelt feeling more than this left brain logical of like, well, I looked at the weather and the weather looks fine for the next 48 hours. Everything's fine. Just go forward. But we would just spend hours and days in this contemplative place of like, is this still okay? Do we notice anything? How are our bodies? How are our stomachs? How are our minds? How are our emotions? What are we noticing and how is it changing? And it just brought, it kind of like turned on all these senses that we never really encountered when we weren't climbing, like in the lowlands, you just don't need to be that aware of things, rock fall and wind change and weather patterns and avalanche conditions and snow science and all that stuff that ends up really leading to safety in a wild place. Would you say that when you were younger, maybe before, I'm going to call it the John moment, because that's a really cool moment. Would you say that you've picked up on any type of like empathic feelings of the spaces that you were in? I always felt what people were feeling and could always have this feeling of, especially watching TV, when you'd walk into a room and watch people watching the news and they were just taking it in like, oh, this is very factual. I'm glad I'm listening to this thing on this person on TV. And I, I've just always been a person that you could see the feeling didn't connect to the words that someone was saying. And you're like, well, that guy's lying. Like, that's obvious that that person is not telling the truth. Like, how is not everyone seeing this? So that was always a piece of me of just experiencing my world more through feeling than thinking. I've never felt like I've I've thought my way through life very much. <laughs> it, it just kind of like 
it's just like, well, it feels good to go that way. So I'm going to go that way. And then I run into a wonderful person in a series of circumstances that like unfolded into this really unique experience. And I, I've just always been led by field and, and thought. Naturally intuitive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the older I've gotten, the more I've realized that that's not how everyone experiences the world. And it's this beautiful because there's such an obvious trust that you have in your intuitive capabilities because you've had the opportunity to practice connecting with them so many years. Yeah. And when I very first started climbing, it was very much the reason of, I know I have lots of fears in me and I don't know if those are my fears or other people's fears or society's fears. I'm not sure whose fears these are, but they're in me and I need to go express them and go head forward into them to sort out what's real and what's not. So that if I'm going to do anything real in the world, I need to know who I am and, and how I feel about things. And if I can do one thing that's trust myself and how I feel about a situation, then I could potentially be like useful in this life and not just be another person swayed by social media, news media, whatever. You know, there's so many, so much pressure to be something that we're not. So that was really kind of a, a journey. And along the way, I would just find different great thinkers like Buckminster Fuller and Nikola Tesla and Patrick Flanagan, which is a little less known individual, but he wrote a great series of books called Pyramid Power. And he was a great scientist who ended up working for the Department of Technology in, in the Pentagon when he was like 15 years old, just this uh -huh. child genius savant. And all of them talked about this wild thing that they had of like a mental laboratory where they would go internally to practice all of their, their experiments before they actually went to their real material library and, and played them out. And so coming across this in a very logical, book-oriented way of like, wow, these people are pretty legit. I mean, bringing electricity to the world and building the geodesic domes and all tensions integrity structures that drive all of our bridges and and massive stadium infrastructure like that's pretty legit knowledge and all these people are saying they found it from this magical place within all right like i'll, I'll play that <laughs> game <laughs> i love this because you're not just an explorer of the wild the external wild you're also an explorer of the internal wild right yeah and i i think one quote the Buckminster Fuller said was, and it took me a long time to process this, and it sounds pretty cryptic when you first hear it, is that unity, like one person, unity is inherently plural. Because with one thing, there's an outsideness and there's an insideness. There's a context outside and there's a content inside. And as long as that one thing is aware of both of those things, then it can operate as the one thing is meant to. And so much of our world is built on context. Look outside, look at me, look at me, look over here. But don't dare take a moment to sit quietly and wonder about what's inside the machine. And I think those individuals really gave me permission to, to wonder what's, what's on the inside of this. Like, I know what's on the outside. And it's this is beautiful, wonderful world filled with magical people and wondrous places, but what's on the inside? And so I think one of the great tools that I stumbled upon is just this like inquiry and contemplation. Like what's in here? If I can, and Bucky Fuller also talked about this, that we are a sense organ 
And Rudolf Steiner also talked about how our sense organs as humanity have have diminished, have shrunken over time. We used to be able to sense so much more. Even the, the Egyptians talked about that we had 200 different senses that the human being had the capability to experience. And here we are with these five senses and mm-hmm. don't dare talk about this supposed sixth sense or else you're into metaphysical pseudoscientific land. But it was this very curious question of if we have the ability to look outside, smell outside, taste outside, hear outside, if I were to turn all of those sense organs and flip them internally, what might I experience? And then that's when some of the more interesting, I guess, personal vivid experiences started opening up because it was like, oh, there's a whole world in there. If you just stop and listen and wonder about what you might experience on the inside. So tell us more about <laughs> yeah, that. I was like, are, yeah. are you able to expand it all? A few things I came across this idea and this practice of matrix energetics, which really talked about like focusing on the head and all the thinking parts of ourselves, as well as the heart. And when we can drop out of the head and into the heart, we can have different experiences, those inner experiences. And what I found was those inner right-brained heartfelt experiences really had a massive amount of wisdom in them. And so one example, along this path, I'd come across biodynamics, which is you ferment things at different types and times of yearly cycles to sensitize land, to allow plants to give and receive what they need from the land better. You basically make a more sensitive plant because each plant is an antenna. And while you're spraying that stuff out, you also happen to become more sensitive to what's going on in the world around us. And I was kind of on this journey to find more things that created sensitivities. So I went ahead and 3D printed a, a pyramid and sat in a pyramid while doing biodynamics and then found Agnihotra, which is this small little fire that you burn at sunrise and sunset. It's from the ancient Vedic practices and it creates a very palpable, coherent field. And so I just threw all these good things together and see what happens. And nothing happened in the moment, but the very next day I had an experience where I just closed my eyes and it could have been five seconds or it could have been 20 minutes. And I experienced this like great kind of angelic broadsword cutting through the earth with sun glinting off of it and old growth forests and gardens exploding behind it. And then that kind of played out to this question of like, well, if there's a sword doing this thing, then what's it attached to? And then zooming out to, oh, well, there's a giant massive winged figure holding a sword. Okay, well, yeah, that makes sense. And then, you know, what's the context of why is all this happening? And it kind of evolved into a very lucid experience. But at the very end of that, there's this question of like, if I just had that experience, how can my left brain play with that? Like what logic and lesson can I take from that? And the immediate next thought that I had was, There's this tool called a keyline plow that's a shank that cuts through the earth and lifts the soil and allows you to regenerate landscape at scale across hundreds and thousands of acres. That's the thing that I need to buy. And in order to buy that, I need to get a grant to share the cost. And so within a month, I'd written a grant, which I'd never done before. 
had always been intimidated by that financial thing and all the details of a grant. Wrote it, got the money, purchased the plow, and we've been using that plow to regenerate land ever since. But the fascinating thing was the first time we ever used that plow, the shank goes in the ground. And from the corner of my eye, I see the exact same moments of perfectly silver shank cutting into the ground, sun glinting off of it, looking like a broadsword. And in my mind, it was this feeling of like, that's it. That's the thing that happened almost a year ago. And sure, now there's not this like great imaginative other thing connected to it, dragging it through the earth. There's a tractor, which is very practical. But that entire imaginary realm drove a series of logical decisions that created a beneficial effect. And I think that's what's very curious to me is how do we delve into these non-ordinary imaginary states and gather these curious experiences and then bring them back to actually use them for day-to-day support and kind of creating this heaven on earth kind of situation that we have the option to do. Well, I, I will tell you while you've been talking, your guys are insisting that that was Archangel Michael showing you a vision that allowed you to get into the place that you were going to be assisting the earth, all those elements of you, like connecting with the energy of the planet and the elemental beings that were witnessing you. And you were kind of witnessing them, whether you saw them with your 3d eyes or not, you were still feeling it. All of that led you to go exactly where you are today. And that vision you received believing imaginary or not, that was Archangel Michael showing you something so you could lead yourself into that experience. So that's pretty cool that I just got that. Yeah. That makes perfect sense to me. You know, before that encounter, I've always been fascinated by things with big wings. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Um, I love wings. I think that's just a, a very cool example of how the right and left brain can work together. Also getting these intuitive hits that don't necessarily make sense with the logical mind and then still building that relationship with the intuition by practicing trust and moving forward with the actions. Absolutely. It's very much, it feels like my brain or or, or, or me and John in that discus ring. It's like, okay, this is yours, right brain? Hold on to that piece. You run your piece as best as you can and then hand it back and I'll run this other piece. But very much that like dynamic push-pull Everybody trusts each other, mm-hmm. whereas I feel like oftentimes one piece of ourselves is turned on and the other is kind of like oh, yeah. shoved in a closet. Probably the left brain is is definitely on. <laughs> yeah. So you develop this connection with nature, in nature, and you started recognizing all of these beautiful unifying works of influence of nature on you and your experiences. And you have now progressed to a point where you are utilizing those energies in the community. How did you expand that connection with the wild into the lesser wild? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. It's it's definitely been a feeling of, uh, I think I had a couple heartfelt emotional times. Some of my last times that I remember in the mountains, it was this feeling of, uh, you're not meant to stay here. Like you're meant to gather what is here and then take it and use it and share it because the wilderness and the wild energies have so been excluded from urban centers and have been fought and fraught with pain and and genocide of indigenous ideology that 
it's time to bring this back into day-to-day operation. And so it just felt like a kind of a calling of, all right, it's time to go back to Texas and like actually use this type and bring the wilderness back into our denuded landscapes. So a lot of it was building a series of ponds that very much when I sat back after building it with, with bulldozers and large equipment, looking at it and saying, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. That looks exactly like a series of alpine lakes, like small, larger, 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 and then a larger lake at the bottom. Okay, that makes sense. And each one feeds itself as it fills up. And as we got into agriculture and growing things, it was like rock minerals are the key. You know, basalt and volcanic rock minerals are the key. Volcanoes, just how do we bring volcanoes and water harvesting back into central Texas? Because that's what I'd been wandering around on for years was volcanoes and glaciers that crush rock into rock flour and rock dust. And drinking that water, you just feel stronger. You just feel more clarity and more sensitive. And so it was this question of like, okay, I'll just take all the things that were good up there and just bring those back into agriculture, harvest water, build water retention landscapes, and remineralize the earth with volcanic rock minerals. And then everything just works better. And anywhere that there is water, make that water flow, and it works better. So I've just always been trying to kind of replicate those, that like biomimicry that I noticed up there in landscapes here. I definitely see you as a land alchemist. Yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> it's been truly amazing watching what you do and just being able to experience a small part of it i know that i've been able to help build or witness pyramids being built on some of your land that you reside on and what does that do for the land yeah so this is a really fun piece of land and anyone on any land no matter what we can acknowledge that there are these veins of energy moving across our earth. And the proof in the pudding is if you look around the planet earth, there's thousands and thousands of pyramids on all these little energetic points. You know, they refer to ley lines or different terms, but ley lines aren't just one massive artery of a massive river going across. There's like capillary beds across the entire planet, just like the body. And If you just ask the question through the practice of dowsing or pendulum or some people who are just more intuitive can just ask like, hey, if I were to notice where is uh, one of these energetic lines flowing, where might I turn? And you'll just kind of follow that body radar. You know, you might be drawn for some unexplainable reason to walk that way. Just walk that way until you stop. And you're like, I think this might be it. Personally. Until like my trust built more, I'll just use dowsing, which are using little rods and you ask questions and they cross for yeses and they open for no's and you can ask which direction is the thing that I'm looking for and then follow it. And that's been a really fun activity because anytime that I go into that in a self-doubting way, it never works. Yeah. But when I know that I'm going to find it or when I really started trusting dowsing was when someone would ask me to find something that they really critically needed. <laughs> and the first example of this is our dog lost his ball. <laughs> I knew you were going to tell this story. <laughs> so I was like, all right. I mean, I have these dowsing rods and supposedly they work. 
I mean, I'll do anything for my dog. So here, here we go. We're going to, this absolutely works. And I'm going to find this rubber ball, the logic behind how a ball could hold some electromagnetic field doesn't work in my mind. Like I can understand a rubber ball, (laughs) rubber ball, a chuck it, you know, classic (laughs) chuck it. (laughs) So go out into the pasture and do the quick, you know, checking in. Can I douse? May I douse? Should I douse? Little quick consent question with the place, get a yes. And then just ask in which direction is, you know, the very specific rubber orange chuck it ball sitting on top of the surface points me in a direction. And I ask how many feet away is it? You know, is it 50 feet away, hundred feet away, or is it less than 50 feet? Is it less than hundred feet? Eventually I get a number and just kind of work up. Okay. Is it 51 feet, two feet, three feet, four feet, and it crosses it 57 feet, let's say. And I walk that way and there's no ball. And so I ask again and I get a different direction. And I walk that way, no ball. I ask again, walk that way. And I'm starting to doubt everything. And right as I'm starting to doubt, my wife says, well, how many feet is it supposed to be? And I said, it's supposed to be 40 feet directly in front of me. I walk 40 feet and there's this orange rubber ball sitting at my feet. And when I look behind me, I notice that it not only took me directly to where it was, but it took me around two forested bramble thickets that I would have had to like crawl through. And so it was this realization of, wow, we can not only ask questions, but the answers to those questions will be the safest and easiest way to go, which I'm still reeling with that realization. Of, you'll get good. Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So after that experience, I was like, okay, well, so apparently dowsing is legit. If you can find rubber balls, you can find anything else you're looking for. And so back to your question of you can look for these ley line crossings. You can find where two of them cross. And wherever they cross, just like when two rivers cross, it creates eddies and vortexes and a lot of movement. And that movement is either upward and like a male upward spiral or downward inward to the earth in a female inward spiral. And so whenever we put a pyramid, we put the pyramid in one of those upward spirals. And a pyramid is basically a prism. It focuses and increases energy. You know, the reason why we have lasers, they can do amazing things is because there's a prism in there that focuses all this light into a point and it turns what might be a fluorescent light that we can see and read by, and it turns it into a unbelievable power source that can cut through metal. You know, it's like it completely focuses and changes the quality of the energy coming through that. And then always wherever there's one of those male crossings, we can find a female crossing. And around that area, we can put a circle of limestone rock or a high calcium rock. And the fascinating thing is, as you do this, and you shouldn't believe it until you see it, but I've watched people do this and I've been the one doing this is you'll be dowsing and you'll be asking how strong this is and your little dowsing rods will kind of be barely wiggling a little bit. And as you construct this stone circle that you've asked, how far should the diameter of this circle be? And you get an answer. So the whole thing is just consent and questioning with the space around you. As you lay those rocks on the ground, the power and energy of that point strengthens. And it's just overwhelming is this feeling of we are incredibly important stewards of this earth and it needs us 
to open those energy centers, to pop that acupuncture into the earth itself, mm -hmm. to release latent energy that's moving, but it's not available to trees and grasses and people and plants. And we're an incredibly essential part of this ecosystem. It's not just a, oh, there should be less humans and we should do less bad. As we find these pieces of little trim tab technologies, it's, it's really incredible the potential that we have to affect in the environment around us. Well, without a doubt, we're going to have to have you come back to specifically talk about your land alchemy and all yeah. the work that you've done with that, because I think this is absolutely fascinating. And it's really maybe even helpful for us to learn more about this so we can start practicing and helping Mother Earth as well. But I do want to go back into how your connection with nature, I would like to know how that has helped guide you in connecting with yourself and your own internal spiritual journey. Yeah, I, th I think throughout multiple, throughout all my experiences, I've always had a great trust that the entire natural world is like rooting for you. Every single part, the lions, the tigers, the bears, the mountains, the glaciers, the weather. Sure, there are ways for things to go wrong, but overall, the system is really rooting for you. And so I've always had a great trust in being in nature and trust that it also wants me to be there. You know, one example, going back to wings, was when I was teaching a, a class in Kenya, I was invited by one of the students to go to church for a day. And so I was the, the only Caucasian person in this church, and everyone was speaking Swahili. And at one point, everyone got on their knees and put their head on the ground. And in that moment of putting my head on the ground, there was this experience of massive white wings expanding either from my back or from something standing behind me, around me, wrapping me in just this like this love and this trust and this you're safe and you're cared for and you're important and we need what you have. And again, that timelessness of I don't know if that was five seconds or like five minutes and how long have I been on this floor and did anybody notice and I got to wipe these tears out of my eyes and act like everything is totally normal. I just got on the ground like everybody else did. But then fast forward to a week later, when I went into the Rift Valley to teach another first aid course and took a super long run outside of the, the walls of this compound and just ran and ran as far as I could. You know, it was the first time I'd ever been in the Rift Valley and I just wanted to experience it and um, use as much daylight as I could. So I came back in the darkness and the gate guard was really concerned because you know everything's dangerous out there 100 ways to die in the rift valley of africa but it just again it just felt safe and so i came back and the night had fallen and so i just went and sat down outside and my thought has always been well if we're surrounded by energy then by sharing some energy or information then maybe it would allow a bit of a like a crossroads, a bit of a picking up a, a cell phone. So I've always carried a little bit of soil that I've gathered from everywhere that I've traveled. So I put that soil in a water bottle and shook it up and just made a quick little mandala on the ground. Just a little fruit of life, 13 little circles surrounding each other. And I just sat in the middle of it and just asked myself, if I were to notice something, what might it be in this place that I've never been, but it feels powerful and ancient. And in that moment, completely for the first time, 
the mountains themselves, it felt like eyes just slowly open. These like Buddha eyes just slowly open this ancientness, this wise old grandfather who just woke up. And I just felt in my body this feeling of we see you and we're really glad that you see us. It's been a very long time. Mm, wow. And that was about all that I could manage to hold on to in that moment. And soon after that, I went to Nepal and noticed that all of the stupas and buildings had those Buddha eyes painted on them. And it was this epiphany of like, these aren't just some art figure. This is an entire culture acknowledging that everything is alive. Every rock and tree and shrub and plant and flower is alive. And if we can slow ourselves long enough to connect with it, it might have something to teach us. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. I like visibly like shivered. I know. (laughs) I was like, that is so cool. Yes, 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 and yes. (laughs) All of it, Adam, yes. (laughs) So at what point did you start incorporating Agnihotra? Why? And first off, can you share a little bit about what Agnihotra is for the audience? Yes. So first, a a dear friend is working on a documentary of Agnihotra, traveling around the world, finding practitioners who use it to purify atmosphere, to clean soil and water, to help with addiction. But what Agnihotra is, for me, it was a practice that I stumbled upon in a book called The Secrets of the Soil, which talked about a lot of the different technologies that I use, water vortexing and biodynamics and pyramids, all these curious technologies that don't get much, you don't hear about them much, honestly. And so in this wonderful book, one of the chapters was purifying with fire. And at the time of reading it, it was a little bit too much for me to conceptualize that it's a very small pyramid, it's a very small copper pyramid where you burn a fire with dried cow manure soaked in ghee, clarified butter, and you light the fire exactly at the moment of sunrise and sunset. And at the moment of sunrise and sunset, you say a mantra, a Sanskrit mantra. And so there's this alchemical experience of a a fire being focused and condensed into this laser beam-like stream with this small pyramid. And then you have the light of sun coming across a broad prism effect of the atmosphere exactly at sunrise and sunset. And then you have the sound. So you light, sound, geometry, fire, heat. There's a lot going on there, but it's a practice that's been around for over 6,000 years. If our timelines on the Vedic texts are accurate, you know, currently we say that the Upanishads is about 6,000 years old. And there's a lot of questions of, are we dating history as old as it actually is? Could things be vastly older? And so at first, when I came across that, it was a bit too much for me to conceptualize and accept. And I was a bit too busybodied to be able to sit and meditate with a fire. But after going to Nepal, I came back and I I was ready to go ahead and just make purchase of this little kit and start the practice. And so I just started the practice and did it for two weeks straight and just noticed that everything worked much more in harmony, much more serendipitously. 
serendipities and coincidences were no longer like a, oh, that's surprising that that happened. It was just baseline foundation of how the world works. It was like, yeah, of course I had a need. And then I met a person that filled that need. And now I have another question. And then I found a person at a coffee shop that answered that question. And it was just how it is. And anytime that I'll have the the discipline to continue on that Agnihotra path of morning, evening, sunrise, sunset, every day continuously, the world just works very differently and much more in harmony. And honestly, at the end of one of those, hey, I'm going to just commit to this and do it for a month long. I had an internal calling of, you know what, I need to go to that party that a friend mentioned. And that's where I met my wife, Alice. And it was just this feeling of, I don't know why I just came to this party where I don't know anyone, but I know that I need to be here. And I know that I meet someone who's very important. I don't know if they're a friend, a, a mentor, a business partner, but I know that I need to be here. And being here, I meet someone incredibly important and stumbled upon her. And it was it was uh, night and day. Like, that's the person. That's the one. That's why I'm here. I love and it. And so it's just a tool <laughs> to sensitize ourselves. That's I'm so gonna, interesting. Just I almost like, started crying. I was like, oh, I know, <laughs> I know. And so it's it's interesting to me because Agni Hotra, from what I've read and understood of it, before I was able to practice it with you as a guide, it was more of just this religious practice. It I hadn't made this connection to the energies unseen being impacted by this little fire ceremony. Me neither. And so this is just very cool because it wasn't just events that seemed to be happening in this divine timing for your greatest and highest good. It was also, you know, going back to your work, it affected some of the weather patterns too, right? Like what you experience as far as like regeneration within the land. Yeah. So a couple of different things about the mechanism of it, as far as I understand, and this is one of the fun things about this documentary that's being made is we're just getting more science about this inherently spiritual practice. You know, a few things occur is right now with things like cloud seeding that's been used for since the 50s to make rain is you inject a small nanoparticle into the atmosphere, which then allows any moisture present to condense around that particle create a cloud and hopefully rain on a field that's been in a drought. That's exactly what Agnihotra does. It injects nanoparticles of rice and cow manure and ghee. Those particles are coated in an oil, which creates a charge. So you're releasing these highly charged, tiny, tiny particles because you got to think like, here's cow manure. Why would we use cow manure of all things? Well, cow manure is fermented grass that's been through a series of ruminant stomachs and it's highly broken down grass. And now you're burning that that's already been through a chemical fermentation. And so what's left is one of the most broken down particle sizes that you can get to through natural processes. And so you're injecting that into the atmosphere. This pyramid condenses and compresses it into not just you know, a little fire that kicks off some smoke. You're talking about particles that are launched, according to Richard Powers, who builds these Agnihutra kits and who's been doing it for 43 years. Apparently, you can measure these particles up to eight miles above the Earth's surface. And so you're creating this like coherent stream. You're basically pulling the plug on a bathtub and creating this suction siphoning experience that 
if it makes sense, flip that bathtub upside down and you pull the plug and the suction goes up instead of down with Agnihotra. So I've always found it interesting of fires this antithesis to water. Water's got these vortexes moving downward down a stream, but with fire, you can flip those vortexes and launch things upwards. And so you're with this very small tool and a bit of focused intention at the right time of day, speaking the right Sanskrit words, which have a geometric impact on sound frequencies and cymatics, you're literally altering the material field around yourself into a more coherent state. So you're getting more flow you're, and nature abhors a vacuum. So if you pull a plug on something, no matter where the thing is coming from, it's moving towards that space. And so it just creates a very dynamic environment as opposed to just a still stagnant pond of air sitting around us uh, without any interaction or flow in it. And energetically, you're talking about, you know, that fire is not just fire anymore. It is like a living conscious plasma field that ripples and flows and moves in a very rhythmic way. And it will even shift into these like green wavelengths of light that look very identical to the Northern Lights because you have an excited state of matter. And so energetically what that does I don't know. It's beyond my comprehension, but it feels really good when you are doing Agnihotra and it has significant effects on growth rates of plants and health of people. It's a pretty exciting, very small tool that for 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the evening, a couple individuals can make a relatively big impact in the unseen realm of coherence versus the chaoticness that surrounds us often. I was just hearing that it's helping to feed the, they described it as a web, like a web of consciousness that surrounds the planet and it helps drive that energy and that information up to it, which is currently shared with the whole collective of everything on earth. So that was kind of wild. The higher frequency of vibration. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, I I just kept hearing everything is connected. And, you know, to, to your point, Chara, I think there's a reason why in all the different great ancient texts of India, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, it's what they did to appease the gods before doing something important. Before weddings and funerals and battles, there was always a group Agnihotra, and they said different mantras in it, which makes sense. I mean, from a mythic, legendary perspective of feeding the higher realms, that's occurring and here we are now just trying to understand a bit more of the scientific mechanism of this wonderful little mysterious fire. It's like laying down that foundation in that spiritual practice. They were laying down the foundation of higher vibratory experiences to help support whatever event was happening to move towards the greatest and highest good for the collective. So setting that intention, asking for permission, trusting developing that relationship and being in a state of gratitude. These are like the themes that I'm hearing over and over again. Absolutely. Yeah. It feels like just, if you can stay in a state of those things, then everything works better. And as we find tools, if those tools don't encourage those states, then we should, I feel like we should question the use of those tools. Mm -hmm. But when we find tools like things like Agnihotra and pyramids and biodynamics where you're working with water and trying to create a 
a sense of gratitude while stirring a vortex in the water for an hour. Now we're like, oh, well, yeah, we're using a technology and those technologies are capturing, using, amplifying these beneficial states that we've already noted are useful. So yeah, I guess they passed the <laughs> test. Of, we should do them more. <laughs> if it feels good, why not? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> as simple as that. We don't need to know all this like mental gymnastic yes. stuff. If it feels good and it's consensual, you should probably do it. <laughs> and that reminds me to stay cr curious and play. Exactly. The John moment. We're going to go yes. with the John moment from here on out. <laughs> Circling back. <laughs> That's right. That's super cool. <laughs> I feel, Adam, that we could literally talk to you for, for hours on mm -hmm. all these amazing mm -hmm. topics. I definitely hope that you'll come back and share a lot of this information with us, especially with what you're doing, because it's so fascinating. And I do have a couple more questions. So first off, I wanted to ask Adam, what do you do to help maintain your spirit on a regular basis as mm -hmm. far as like self-care? Mm, good question. You know, I think just finding a minute, five minutes to just settle in and to give a piece of gratitude to wherever I am and to continue to offer myself up as a vessel for the greatest and highest good and whatever is meant to come through. May I have the fortitude and courage and integrity to allow that to come through and then trust whatever is happening is respecting that that little meditation, that little prayer. And sometimes I get, you know, an hour to sit with Agnihotra, but more often in the last year, it's been one minute here or five minutes there. And then the other piece is just noticing when self-doubts and self-criticism come up and releasing those as quickly as possible and naming those mm -hmm. to the people around me that, hey, you know, a, a friend just yesterday shared that he's applying for a job with a very high paying salary. And I felt some envy. And so this morning I just shared with him, Hey man, I was feeling some envy towards that salary. Like that's amazing. And I want to shift that to celebration for you and all the things that that's going to allow for your family. And so I feel like just naming what we're feeling to others so that they can witness it is hugely grounding and resetting. So we're not holding things internally secretly. That is great advice. Yes. <laughs> Adam, uh, we like to ask some Unless Carrie, do you have any additional ones before we go into rapid? So yeah, we like to ask what we call rapid fire questions. Also known as slow burning questions. Slow burning questions. <laughs> you don't have to go as quick as you need to. My first one to you is what is one piece of advice you would now give to your younger self? Believe in the feelings, the thoughts, the imaginative dreams that come up and know that they're coming up for a reason and a purpose and don't doubt them. If you feel like an outsider or like no one can relate to you, that's good because it means that something is coming through that you're meant to hold, that those are just your pieces of the puzzle. And, and the world requires you to share those widely. And final question, what does self-love mean to you? Self-love means a continuous conversation with self that is raw and that is painful and that is truthful and that requires courage to continue to see yourself 
and be your full self in a world that continues to force us to be someone that we're not or continues to force us and encourage us to be something that's smaller than we are. Beautiful. Fantastic. Well said, sir. This has been a favorite. So thank you (laughs) for joining us today on this wonderful special episode of Love Always Self, the people's journey. We look forward to having you back on this show. Thanks again. And for all of the audience out there listening, you can find this information on YouTube if you're listening to us on audio only. So you can see this wonderful face that we are currently talking to. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button, hit like, notification bells for any future episodes. And don't forget to love first, love last, and love always. Bye, y'all. Hey, listener, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us in this moment. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and we look forward to our next connection. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and follow to stay notified of new content from Love Always Self. If you have any questions or topics you'd like for us to discuss, please hit us up on any of our social media platforms linked in the show notes below. I'm Karista. And I'm Shira. And until next time, remember to love first, love last, and love always. Love Always Self podcast is meant for entertainment purposes only. We do not make any warranties about the completeness, reliability, and accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. Any action you choose to take upon the information in this podcast is strictly done so at your own risk, and we will not be held liable for any losses and damages in connection with the use of our podcast. Any and all medical concerns should be addressed with a licensed healthcare provider, as well as any questions that may be derived from the information discussed in this podcast.